It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Michael Cow is CIO and Portfolio Manager of Cow Family Offices and is well known for coining the dollar wrecking ball, a metaphor to describe dollar hegemony. Having traded commodities at J. Aaron and Goldman in the early 90s, Michael's worldview embraces the significance of oil. And subsequent experiences at Canyon Partners, a credit-oriented hedge fund, as well as the launch of his own investment firm, Acanthos Capital Management, leave Michael uniquely placed to provide a truly holistic view of what moves markets. While the US dollar has appreciated enormously against a basket of international currencies, from pound sterling to the Japanese yen, I asked Michael if the dollar is too strong for its own good, and if so, how long could this historic dollar strength last? And remember, to receive a roundup of Opto's best content every day, subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in the episode description. Enjoy. Welcome, Michael. It's great to have you on the show. So how are things? Thanks for having me. Things are looking good (laughs) here in California. I'm lucky to be in California where we still have somewhat balmy weather. Yeah, yeah, lovely. We were discussing before. We got on the call, but uh, it's very different weather here in London, um, but hopefully it improves, at least stop raining. So uh, we'll return to this question, I think, later on, but perhaps you can briefly explain what is the dollar wrecking ball? So I coined this term a little bit over a year ago, and my concern at the time. So I've been doing a lot of work over the last seven or eight years in the oil space. And so I came upon it from a very uh, commodity-centric view because my view, which was out of consensus at the time, was that this structural commodity bull market that has been many years in the making, but certainly exacerbated by current green energy policies, as well as the Ukraine war, was setting up for a, a perfect storm that would ignite inflation and cause the Fed to start a hiking cycle sooner than everybody else. And that, you know, whereas in the past, typically commodity bull markets have been associated with weak dollar regimes, that this time it would be different. It would be the actual commodity strength itself that would gird the Fed into creating this US dollar wrecking ball. And I label it a wrecking ball because, you know, obviously, as is evident now, you know, most because oil is denominated primarily in US dollars and traded in US dollars. And, you know, most of the other countries that especially net importing countries, you know, they, they really have a big problem, right? Because if you have a dollar that's strengthening at the same time that dollar denominated oil is strengthening, that's a, that's a real double whammy. And we're seeing that 
you know, kind of unfold before our eyes right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fascinating theory and one that I want to get back to. Uh, I did my homework on it before the call, so I'm keen to explore it further. But before we do, maybe just to give the rest of the interview some context, uh, let's let's tackle your background. Um, I read that you traded commodities at Jay Aaron or, or Goldman from 92 to 95. So perhaps you can just give us a sense of what it was like to trade commodities at that time and perhaps uh, highlight a few of the more interesting markets for us. So I was on a desk called the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index desk, which was then a, a very nascent product. I think that product maybe got rolled out in 91 or something right. like that. I started trading it in 93. You know, Jay Aaron, I have very, very fond memories of Jay Aaron uh, just from a you know, learning to cut one's teeth perspective. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a tough environment to grow up in, right? You know, as, especially as a young person, but it's trial by fire. You know, being on that desk, I had the advantage of touching almost every business within J. Aaron, right? So the GSCI at that time was composed of 22 underlying commodities, but it was cap weighted. So about half of the index was oil and associated products. So from a very, very early vantage point, I realized how important oil was to the world. I mean, you know, the, I also I was also able to trade all the other associated commodities like, you know, softs, cocoa, cotton, you know, live hogs, live cattle, wheat, you know, metals, everything. So it was it was really fun. It was a great way to get an overview of the, the macro commodity landscape. Yeah, great. Well, it sounds pretty formative. I was reading through your, uh, I think it was your about page on uh, Substack, but uh, it told me that you then left uh, Goldman to pursue an MBA in finance from the Wharton School. So why did you decide to go back into education at that point? Well, so I did my undergrad in electrical engineering and computer science. I, I had wanted to be a video game designer. And it wasn't until maybe like my senior year in college at Berkeley that I thought, you know, I don't know that I like the, the engineering and the coding lifestyle, et cetera. So that's how I, I initially, when I joined Goldman, joined as a programmer and I was designing uh, and writing the currency options software. Right. And so it was a year later that I became a trader. But after two years of trading, as stimulating as it was, I thought, you know what? I really have no fundamental knowledge about the world of finance or, or economics or anything beyond what, what I've learned here at the desk. So I chose to go back to business school and you know, major in finance and statistics. Yeah, cool. Okay, so you get that sort of economic grounding then. And then after business school, you join a company called Canyon Partners, a credit-oriented hedge fund. I mean, I imagine things happened before this point, but I read that during the time there, you co-founded the Canyon Arbitrage Fund. Perhaps you can just give a sense of what specifically you were looking to arbitrage within that strategy and, and yeah, just give us an insight into the fund's approach. Just a little bridge to that point. I did a very impactful um, internship at Harvard Management during my summer at Wharton. Mm. And it was at that internship that I was exposed to just the much bigger world of all these different types of relative value hedge fund Mm -hmm. strategies, including convertible arbitrage, merger arbitrage, equity long short Mm -hmm. strategies, et cetera. Right. So that's what, you know, because prior to that experience, my entire worldview of what hedge funds uh, were, mm. were either CTAs, right, or macro uh, macro traders like, you know, quantum funds, yeah, right? And so, so it was that internship that broadened my view, like, wow, there's just so much more that's interesting. And so when I took a job at Canyon, I was a little bit of a fish out of water because mm. Canyon's strategy was totally different than what 
my background was. Canyon was very steeped. You know, the founders of Canyon came out of Drexel, super, super smart, fundamental credit and capital structure guys. And my background was more, you know, trading and derivatives, right? Mm. So what I sought to do there was to to try to figure carve out my own niche really right because mm. you know I, I need i needed to learn credit analysis and capital structure but i i felt that i could also add value given my distinct background from from the rest of the professionals there so i i started dabbling in convertibles convertible arbitrage etc and had great success doing it during like from 1998 99 i wound up putting my thoughts on paper. I wrote an internal white paper. It was entitled Alpha with Asymmetry. And my general thesis was that, okay, so uh, certain strategies like convertible R, volatility arbitrage, right? These are inherently long gamma strategies, right? You don't need a greater fool for you to extract the value. And then there's certain other strategies, like for instance, merger arbitrage that have inherently short gamma dynamics. And so my thought, and I viewed this as kind of almost like a business plan that I presented to partners. I said, what if I could create a business that had a combination of the two and the long and short gamma characteristics kind of act as systemic hedges, but through mm-hmm. proper position uh, selection, I could wind up coming out winning on both sides, right? Mm. So it was, all, but it was also a lucky time to be involved there because, you know, remember when I joined Canyon, I joined Canyon in the fall of 1997, just when the beginnings of what I call the first Asian contagion started happening, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was able to exercise some of my derivative skills to help hedge some equity portfolios during that very, very volatile period. And then when, when LTCM blew up and created all this contagion in credit markets, so and convertible markets, yeah. you know, by by association, and in the risk arbitrage markets, I was directly able to put both sides of my sort of alpha with asymmetry thesis to work. So that's how the Canon Capital Arbitrage Fund started. I think we started that fund officially in 2001, but I had already been kind of running that strategy within uh, Canyon's overall fund for probably about two years at that point yeah yeah got it it's really interesting how old were you out of interest when you when you sort of co-founded that strategy i was 30 30 yeah okay great and it seems as if and maybe i'm i'm kind of taking a leap here but all of those experiences i guess you were keen to culminate in in a strategy and a a kind of an investment firm of your own because in 2002 you leave canyon to launch your own investment firm as i say acanthos capital right Um, Right. So why strike out on your own at that point? Was there a eureka moment, perhaps? You know, it was always something that I had wanted to do. You know, my, my parents were entrepreneurs yeah. um, growing up. And, you know, I always thought, you know, at some point I wanted to, to strike out on my own. And, and uh, you know, I have nothing but the greatest of respect for the founders of Canyon and still remain uh, very good friends with them mm. today. So I left on very good terms. But it was something I just needed to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so as luck would have it, I, you know, I think the year prior I had met a, I guess, a friendly competitor uh, that was more of a, a volatility ARB type of convert mm-hmm. ARB, whereas my experience out of a canyon had been one that was more gravitated towards credit mm-hmm. and understanding capital structure. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was the genesis. You know, I wound up getting like a hundred million of seed capital, mm-hmm. um, 
back then, which was a big number for back mm. then for a fun launch yeah, yeah. back in 2002. Uh, and then, yeah, so then we were off to the races. Yeah, great. And how would and you... I ran it for 17 years. Yeah, yeah, I read that. I mean, how, how would you characterize the firm's strategy or, or philosophy uh, if you could sum it up and give us a, the, the elevator pitch? You know, so so it evolved. I would say that for the first, from 2002 to about 2009, mm-hmm. okay, we were a very, what our investors would have, uh, how they would have characterized us was that we were very creative convert and capital structure arms. Mm-hmm. So by creative, meaning that, you know, if you think about the standard convertible arbitrageur as, you know, being long converts and, you know, short stock and, you know, sometimes hedge out the credit with CDS, right? We would do things like, you know, well, sometimes we might be long a convert and short a straight bond and have no stock hedge, or sometimes we might be, you know, uh, long a convert and short another convert. And this is where I, I kind of liken putting some of these creative trades together as almost like computer programming. Like the, the two of them share a lot in common to me because it's a way of creatively problem solving, right? And here the problem is how do I express the most asymmetric bet within a capital structure? So that was our primary focus from 2002 to 2009. And what happened in 2009, obviously, was the great financial crisis, 2008. Post, so a lot of my trades were required the ability to to margin right uh, to be able to hold on to these different types of capital structure pieces and be able to margin the prime broker's balance sheet after 2008 that pretty much disappeared mm. so it became much more difficult and expensive from a balance sheet perspective to maintain some of these really interesting structural bets I had on. And so we became more, uh, I guess, directional Mm -hmm. uh, and more distress oriented, because certainly in the wake of the great financial crisis, the real juice was in distressed securities. um, Right. And so by dint of our capital structure experience, that's how we kind of gravitated uh, into that. So I think from 2009, all the way to kind of 2018, I would I would say that we then became a capital structure agnostic mm-hmm. value investor, right? So mm-hmm. what that means is, you know, we would look up and down the capital structure for the most asymmetric ways to play it. And I used to think of my portfolio as a portfolio of diversified fulcrum securities. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean by, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the fulcrum security, just define it for your audience, is you know, that part of the capital structure where even a small change in the overall enterprise value Mm-hmm. can result in a very asymmetric change in the fulcrum, right? So in a very levered company, the fulcrum could be the equity. But in a company that's uh, in distress, right, the equity could be wiped out and the fulcrum could be the convertible bonds or it could be, mm-hmm. you know, some some debt tranche. So we always uh, liked to find that fulcrum point in a capital structure and and bet there. So that's what we did for the next, you know, eight or nine years or something like that. Yeah. And and to get us towards present day, I guess, I think you stopped taking outside investment at the end of 2018. Yeah. Why was that? Were you keen to pursue other interests? How did that come about? So from, from the period of like 2014 and I would say 2018, we were heavily involved in the distressed energy sector. Yeah. 
which as you know, that area was like very, very challenging, right? And so ultimately, I think that I'll call it the, um, in Q4 of 2018, you may remember that I call it the Trump rug pull. So um, Trump basically had pulled us out of the JCPOA, right? And, um, you know, oil was, uh, the supply situation in oil was starting to tighten up. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, he begged Saudi Arabia to basically flood the market with oil in anticipation of, you know, no sanction waivers, right? And then, of course, as the barrels were headed over, he grants 11 waivers and market collapses. I remember at that point, I was thinking to myself, okay, you know what? I've done all the micro analysis for the companies that we follow, done all the macro analysis. And yet, like, you know, this type of random thing happens. Mm. And I felt like, not only did I have no edge at that point, I felt, you know what, I'm just burned out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm burned out. Um, so the very last big deal that my firm participated in, which, which comprises a very big personal bet for me, even to this day, is the restructuring of a company uh, that was called Brightburn. It was an upstream MLP that was very levered and went bankrupt in 2016 mm -hmm. and was in a very contentious chapter 11 for almost 28 months. Mm. And so long story short, we, along with a, like, I think nine or 10 other hedge funds led by Elliott management, mm -hmm. wound up coming to a deal with the second liens where we carved up the company, the second lien holders wound up getting legacy assets, and we unsecured bondholders wound up buying out the sort of what we viewed as the crown jewel of the company, mm. which was, you know, a big contiguous block in the Permian Basin. Mm. And so thus embarked my journey on, you know, being involved in a starting a brand new company, essentially, mm. we infused this company with with fresh capital, brought in new management team, uh, brought in a new management team, and it really opened my eyes. And so at that point, I had decided to shut the remainder of my fund and essentially just keep this one piece yeah. where I would be, you know, uh, kind of somewhat directly involved. And, you know, to this day, I, I probably have, you know, daily conversations with the management team there. And so I have kind of a quasi insiders look into the industry. And that's been really, really fun. But it also highlighted something very, very important, which is, so one of the issues that I learned in that 2014 to, you know, call it 20, even 2020 protracted bear market in mm -hmm. oil was the difficulty of getting both the micro and the macro right. And even if you got the macro right, Sometimes you get bit in the ass on the micro because there were management teams, especially back then, that did not look at what we call full cycle mm -hmm. returns, right? They'll tell you how great their well-level IRRs are. But the thing is, the, the free cash flow was never forthcoming because they kept redeploying uh, that free cash flow into worse and worse mm -hmm. acreage, right? So I call that capital reallocation mm -hmm. risk which is a perhaps less of a problem today because I think a lot of the the sector has found religion in terms of more capital discipline and share you know shareholder return but when we started this new company that um, we had a very very specific model in mind that differed from uh, the publics and that is we said okay you know what we have a fabulous piece of acreage that represents a finite resource and we're going to fully harvest it we're not going to have capital reallocation mm -hmm. risk and we're going to oh, we're going to see this through in terms of full cycle returns 
right? So we basically started the company back in 2018. It's now been, uh, I guess, just about mm-hmm. five years, four years, almost five years. And we're now to the point where, you know, it's a, it's a company that is producing a substantial amount of uh, barrels per day and cash mm-hmm. flow. And, uh, it's, it's, it's a good place to be because, you know, I've had, I've had this longstanding view that this commodity, that there is a structural bull market in, in the commodity sector. And we can talk about that mm-hmm. if you'd like, but. That view, that commodity-centric view, is what informs a lot of my overall macro views that have extended to, obviously, like the dollar, things like that. Yeah, fascinating. I didn't know about a lot of that, so that's really interesting to know. And there are a few points I want to return to, but I guess if we just round it, round your kind of career history section off. Uh, present day, you're writing about financial markets on your blog, Cowboy Musings. Uh, how would you sum up the blog style because when i read it it felt pretty differentiated to some of the other stuff i've read on substack by some of your peers so how would you sum up the style well first of all i you know i don't i'm not plugging my substack at all because i haven't i really haven't updated it okay so one after i officially returned my outside money in early 2019 you know, I realized, wait, you know, so I still love financial markets. I just don't really want to be an active uh, fiduciary anymore, right? So how does one sort of stay engaged and stay relevant? I, I started tooling around with like a blog and, you know, and, you know, wrote a bunch of pieces on it, which I've now put onto Substack. But there, what I found was, you know, it was kind of frustrating. I, you know, I had a distribution list of maybe like, you know, 400 people that I sent it to and, I, and I'd spend like hours or days on, on some piece. And then maybe get like, you know, five messages back, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, this is not really rewarding because what I miss was the engagement with smart people. And, you know, then, yeah. then I discovered Twitter about two years ago, right? So yeah. so I, I predominantly um, tweet about things. The Substack that you see is, is dated. I just have it up there, but uh, maybe someday I'll get to it. But Twitter for me has been um, very uh, eye-opening because one of my concerns after you know, dismantling my team and, you know, just sort of being like a, like a lone gun, if you will, was, you know, know, am I going to be as in the loop? And what I found is that if you put out quality content, unbiased quality content, like like unbiased, obviously I have my own bias, market biases. What I mean by unbiased is that I'm not out there trying to sell a product or a service. I don't sell mm-hmm. any sort of subscriptions. I'm not out there trying to raise money. So I'm just putting out stuff out there that I believe. I'm not trying to mm-hmm. pitch anything. And I don't pitch individual stocks, right? So, so yeah. I'm, I, I don't want to ever be known as a sort of a stock pumper, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, what I found is that uh, when you put yourself out there like that, you attract other really smart people and they actually helped me sort of sharpen my own thesis, if you will, uh, or shoot it down in some cases, right? Yeah. So it's been very um, rewarding. And, you know, because of Twitter, been, you know, at, well, wouldn't have met you if it weren't for Twitter, right? No, no. absolutely not. So, so getting these opportunities to speak to, uh, to, to different folks has been, been the most fun I've had in a while. Yeah. Yeah. No, we owe uh, a lot to Twitter. I was talking, I mean, probably to people that you're aware of. I think we, we've got Doomberg uh, that I spoke to a couple of weeks ago. 
uh, episodes out or came out today. Uh, we spoke to Grant Williams, previously of Real Vision. Like, there's this whole sort of FinTwit community that we've we've tried to embed ourselves within because I think there's so many fascinating people there. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Great. All right. Well, let's, let's return to the dollar wrecking ball. We've, we've kind of skirted around it. And obviously, there was a nice overview at the start. But this year, the US dollar has appreciated significantly against a basket of international currencies, including the pound, which I'm well aware of, the euro and the Chinese yuan. Uh, perhaps we can start with the macro factors feeding dollar strength at the moment, which, in your opinion, are the most significant? You know, so obviously, you know about, uh, you know, Brent Johnson's, you know, milkshake uh, theory. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we did a, I think Dimitri Kofinas hosted a space where we, we were both on there. What I found really interesting is that I think we all, we came at uh, this from different angles um, and yet kind of arrive at the same place, right? So my dollar wrecking ball thesis, as I alluded to at the very, very beginning, stems from this observation that what started off as a commodity oil specific inflation, then it, you know, Pandora's box, so to speak, got left open too long by the Fed. And that leapt into much stickier components of inflation. And now we've got this full inflation conflagration, Mm -hmm. if you will, that's led the Fed to be much uh, more aggressive on hikes than the rest of the world. And, you know, at the time, it was a very, very much an out of consensus bet. Now it feels somewhat of a crowded bet, to be honest with you. But yet, you know, you've seen the DXY take a bit of a breather over the last uh, several weeks. I attribute that partially to direct uh, interventions and what I call yeah. picture painting by uh, banks like, you know, the BOJ and PBOC, mm-hmm. for instance. And part of it is also driven by this notion that, um, you know, perhaps, you know, the Fed is getting to the point where they need to, you know, step down or slow down their policy. But one variant view that I have, I think, is that I think don't confuse a pause in the dollar wrecking ball as a secular top. To me, I don't necessarily think the secular top in the dollar wrecking ball comes until we arrive at a point where the other big global economic blocks are in a relatively stronger economic position that will allow their central banks to outhawk the Fed. In fact, I wrote in a tweet yesterday that I said, look, if macro conditions in the world got so bad as to make our Fed blink and actually pause like today, well, then those same economic conditions have likely already tipped the rest of the world into full-blown easing mode. And you're, you're kind of already seeing that, frankly, right? Because if you see what the Bank of England uh, had to do in the gilt market, right, they were forced from QT to QE to defend the pension system. And the latest thread that I wrote, I called it, you know, the geopolitical mosh pit is this contention that I have that when you have a world of structural inflation, it creates a rift between different central banks and their their incentives, because what is good for the Bank of England is not necessarily good for the Fed. What is good for the Bank of Japan certainly is not good for the Fed. So it creates an every man for himself dynamic where I think, you know, when when you see these 
central bank interventions, especially in their bond markets, leading to a risk rally here, thinking that our Fed is going to start to do the same thing. I think that's a very sort of dangerous line of reasoning, because I think that our Fed here is focused on uh, the primary mandate of taking inflation down right now. And in fact, this this latest bout of sort of, you know, risk rip, I call it, is to me a, a, a direct replay of what happened in July when, you know, the Bank of Japan first, there were rumors that seemed to be borne out by the charts, but uh, the rumors were that the bank, when, when the yen first hit 137, the Bank of Japan essentially asked the Fed for help and the Fed allowed the Bank of Japan to basically buy our 10 years to essentially paint a picture of a Fed pivot or something like that. And so what you then saw was like this huge, you know, multiple weeks long risk rip, you know, in bonds, you know, specifically the 10 year in equities, etc. And then when that came to an end, as we all know, um, the yen broke to new lows, and then the the 10 year uh, and the entire yield curve kind of, you know, gave up the ghost. So I think right now, I think we are yet in another bout of that. Um, and it, it's somewhat of a confusing time in the markets because there's a lot of what I call picture painting going on. Yeah, I, I can agree more with the picture painting point. It does feel like there's a lot of that about. We, we kind of touched on the end game there, but maybe if we take it back to the start, you know, why is this happening to the dollar? What inherent characteristics or traits does the dollar have that other currencies don't? Well, there are so many. You know, I think you know, the standard... Uh, response that, you know, we've got a, you know, balance of payments issue and that, you know, our debt to GDP is at a certain level, which means that the dollar is doomed to fail. Well, the problem I've always had with that line of reasoning is that when you're talking about a world of fiat currency against fiat currency, right, it's all relative, right? So if you think about the insults that have been heaped on the dollar, you can consider no greater insult than what our own Fed has done over the last two to three years, right? By expanding the balance sheet by like six trillion and essentially conduct an overt uh, weak dollar policy. And yet during that period, the DXY went no lower than really around 90, 88, 90, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, that was during a time where, where it was an overt weak dollar policy. Now I posit that, you know, so so when you when you talk about, this is what uh, Dimitri Kovinas he was asking about you know endogenous factors and exogenous yeah, yeah. factors, right? And so, so my answer to that question is that some of the endogenous factors that lend the uh, U.S. dollar inherent strength are unparalleled geopolitical advantages, mm -hmm. right? So, from the uh, from a pure geographic standpoint, to borrow some of the uh, Peter Zehan and Tim Marshall analogies, right? Mm -hmm. um, the U.S. is kind of an accidental superpower in that it's it's got you know, these twin oceanic buffers, you know, you know, two friendly buffer states in the north and south, this massive contiguous land in the center with, um, you know, per capita arable land uh, acreage, that's like 15 times that of China, not to mention the whole riverine network, etc. So these are things and when I put on my sort of capital structure, my corporate capital structure hat, I think of this as um, the left side of the balance sheet, right? So, you know, in my world of distressed, and you're you're thinking about the end game of a corporation, right? And a going through a bankruptcy, which I've you know I've, I've participated in many of these restructuring. When debt gets wiped out and gets converted to post reorg equity, what determines 
where the fulcrum security is in a capital structure is the asset side of the balance sheet, right? And so when you think about what the end game is, if we really go down a sort of sovereign debt crisis, right? Even in that scenario, I would say that the US dollar from a, if you view it purely as a, from a restructuring perspective, it still comes out ahead because of the portfolio of geographic assets that the US has vis-a-vis the rest Mm. of the world, right? So to me, you cannot just look at some of these metrics, these like, for instance, like debt to GDP, things like that, without considering what that is, you know, and then there's also the hard and soft power, some of the qualitative uh, factors right behind the dollar, and also the inherent depth and liquidity of the bond uh, of the underlying bond markets, Mm -hmm. right, which is very, very Mm -hmm. important. Um, Something that I think is very important to also mention is that, you know, yes, Bretton Woods, when Bretton Woods was signed, you know, there was this notion that there would be this sort of dollar-based world order, but it's not as if there are these overlords that can hold, that can control the puppet strings and force everybody to use the dollar against their will. The market has chosen the dollar, Yeah, right? It's an organic process. And if there were a much better alternative to the dollar, you'd already see it. And what I think is interesting is when you look at the euro, for instance, the euro to date has been the most successful experiment to wrest hegemony away from the dollar. Yeah. And yet to me right now, the euro is at the greatest point of fracture risk we've seen since its creation. And in my opinion, you know, again, it revolves back to energy, right? Energy has a lot to do with this. And I think that when you have monetary union without political union, it's creating all of these rifts. And so now, if you think about the complex world that we live in, this is truly a geopolitical mosh pit. We've got the Fed at odds, essentially. All of the other central banks are trying to keep their brave faces on and keep pace with the Fed. The ECB just raised 75 basis points today, right? But I posit that the ECB just can't keep up with the Fed. Right, uh, you know their equivalent dot plots indicate that their terminal rate's going to be around like two seventy five. Well, hmm, good luck with that. They're at one and a half right now. They're already, and I think that the Fed has a more of an ability to reach five percent than the ECB has an ability to reach two and three quarters. Mm-hmm. And so, so this comes to the exogenous reasons for dollar strength. The exogenous reasons have to do with cyclical and econ- relative economic strength. And right now, if you look at the, the U.S. economic zone versus the European economic zone versus the Asian economic zone, the other two economic zones cyclically are also on the back foot relative to the U.S. right now. Mm-hmm. So right now, I, I see that there are both the endogenous and the exogenous factors are lending dollar strength, if you follow. I mean, there's a couple of points I want to follow up on there. Firstly, the um, the fragility of the European project, that's something that Grant Williams emphasized in the uh, in the conversation that we had with him. So um, I'll post that episode in the episode description just so people can check that out. But I'm also interested just to follow up on kind of that organic choosing of the dollar by not just the US, but everyone else around the world almost. That's something I think Brent talked about when I think a line from the conversation you had with him on Dimitri's show was something along the lines of, you know, who captures the money is more important than who actually prints the money. Um, but perhaps you can you can explain exactly what he meant by that and 
obviously, if you disagree with that to a certain extent, or, or you have a different take or a different interpretation on that, I'd, I'd like to hear that as well. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I'm trying to recall what Brent said in that conversation, but I believe he was saying that, you know, capital will flow to where it's treated best. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so I think if when you consider the whole, you know, panoply of reasons why one would choose the dog, if you're sovereign country XYZ, and you let, let's pretend that you have no entanglements right now with any currency and you you wanted to see okay well you know what i need to put my reserves into the dollar or the euro or the yen or or the uh, yuan right these are the dollar's primary fiat competitors well i would want to consider all of those endogenous and exogenous factors right but also i would want to consider the practical components in terms of adoption mm-hmm. liquidity uh underlying liquidity you know bond market liquidity so if you think about Again, you know, a lot of the dollar doomsayers, you know, will say, you know, first a year ago, the big hyperventilation was around, oh, you know, we're going to go the way of, you know, Weimar, you know, and dollars doomed based on debt to GDP metrics. Then it became, you know, the dollar is doomed based on weaponization of the dollar because we froze, uh, you know, Russian central bank assets, etc. So I agree, like, you know, a lot of these things aren't necessarily like friendly, right? Mm -hmm. But again, everything is relative. Mm -hmm. So would you consider having your reserves in the Chinese yuan safer? Mm -hmm. Right? Do you think that having your reserves in a non-convertible currency that is overseen by Xi that just pulled a Palpatine move last (laughs) week? Is that is that is that actually safer? No. Does Saudi Arabia, who, by the way, Saudi Arabia, you know, doesn't like our administration. It's no, it's pretty obvious, mm-hmm. right? Does mm-hmm. not like the current administration. And so you would think that they have every incentive to move away from a dollar standard. Yeah. And yet the Saudi Arabian real has always been dollar pay. Mm-hmm. And so are they going to uh, feel that strongly to stick it to Biden that, you know what? We're just going to put all of our wealth, sovereign wealth, into the yuan or the ruble. I don't think so. <laughs> no. I don't think so. No, no. I think pragmatism wins out beyond you know, sort of you know, personal <laughs> frustrations. And that's another thing, right? So whether you like it or not, the U.S. system. You could argue that the U.S. political system is both a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because it's a four-year presidential term, and it leads to uh, inconsistent foreign policy choices from administration to administration. And it's a huge source of frustration for a lot of countries, right? But that's also its blessing, right? Because, hey, whatever beefs Saudi Arabia might have with the current administration, that could completely change in two years, Mm -hmm. once again, Mm -hmm. right? So for all all of these reasons, this is why I think like Peter Zahan's point that the US is an accidental superpower. I love that phrase, because It kind of is in a way, because if you think about our sort of federalist capitalist system, it's not the most efficient way of doing things. Certainly, when you view our system in contrast with authoritarian measures of locking down during COVID, you know, a federalist capital system was very, very ineffectual in in locking its citizens down. But yet, who's having the last laugh now, right? <laughs> when you've got like, you know, those same authoritarian regimes now still in quasi-permanent lockdown, and the West has effectively, you know, gone out of that. So 
it, it's 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 kind of it's kind of interesting i think the resilience of that yeah. system even though you know from time to time it may seem inferior to authoritarian regimes over the longer run it seems like it's a much more stable system which again feeds into why the dollar is the preferred vehicle of of safety for most central banks around the world yeah absolutely and um we, we've kind of returned to the dollar there so we might as well finish with with i think the question that a lot of listeners are going to be asking but you know how long is this historic dollar strength going to last when when can they expect that to end so it's so hard right now because i really feel like you know the market right now is in this what i call this intervention matrix right mm. And I had thought that, you know, given just the terrible earnings in the market, you know, that would be sort of like the red pill to, to kind of break us out of the <laughs> matrix. And, yeah, yeah. Right. But I think that, you know, there's still a lot of intervention shenanigans going on right now. I'm hesitant to attach like a specific price target uh, for the dollar. I always like to say I'd rather be sort of generally accurate on direction than precisely wrong on specific targets. Yeah. Right. But I do think that we have not seen the secular top mm -hmm. in the dollar. Because again, I think the key question to answer is when will other central banks have underlying economies strong enough such that they can either outhawk the Fed or comparatively, right? Is something going to happen that makes the US economy so much weaker than the rest of the world that we're going to start out easing the rest of the world? I just can't really see that happening right now. So that's not to say nothing moves in a straight line forever. And I recognize that the uh, the dollar uh, strength has has been pretty extreme this year. Mm -hmm. But I'll, I'll I'll point us back to like the 1985 Plaza Accords, right? So the the DXY equivalent uh, for when the Plaza Accords actually happened was something like 165, and currently we have DXY at 110. Right. And everybody's already ready to call the top and the dollar. The other important observation is that, you know, who was a willing and signatory to those plaza accords to make it happen? The U.S. Mm. Right. So the U.S. at that point was one of the willing volunteers to weaken the dollar. Right now, I would posit that I'm not sure it's even in the U.S.'s geopolitical interest to see a weaker dollar mm. because it, this is kind of an unpopular question to ask but i posed this at the end of my sort of geopolitical mosh pit thread i said you know so to borrow peter zehan's analogy once again about you know so after world war ii if you think about it right the the, the u.s the Bretton Woods world order that was set up was sort of like a quid pro quo. It was sort of like, okay, well, we have the Marshall Plan. We're going to help rebuild the economies of Europe. And in return, we're going to subsidize, you know, sort of global maritime security that everybody transacts on the dollar. That was sort of the broad brushes, right, of the agreement. You know, the, the markets uh, have, have chosen the dollar for, for its own reasons. But what's interesting that uh, Zehan pointed out is that you have the beneficiaries of of that system weren't just you know our allies in mm -hmm. europe for instance like china yeah. china ha has become an overt uh hostile to the west and yet they've been one of the biggest beneficiaries of that system mm -hmm. even the eurozone right which is the us's ally created a competing block mm -hmm. 
right, in, in the form of the euro. So the unpopular question I ask is, if the strong dollar here, you know, in, in the name of fighting inflation, if the Fed happens to create a strong dollar that both devalues all of its competition, would the powers that be from a geopolitical and real politic perspective really have that big of an objection? I posit probably no. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, and I'm not, I'm not advocating uh, one view or another. I'm observing that I think that is the real politic behind it right mm-hmm. now, because what drove the Plaza Accords was that the U.S. actively wanted to see a weaker dollar. I'm not sure that the U.S. actively wants that right now with DXY at 110. Mm. Yeah, completely see what you mean. And um, I think I wanted to finish on a, a kind of clear, concise, actionable insight that our listeners could go away with. And I don't think I could have uh, asked for a better one than that. Um, and certainly a question to ponder on that on that real polity point. Um, but I like to finish every episode with more generic quickfire questions. So these are always the same for every guest that we have on. So perhaps we can finish there. Firstly, what is the most frequent mistake investors make, do you think? I would say chasing FOMO, Mm -hmm. chasing FOMO trades. I mean, I think that my own greatest uh, mistakes as an investor were born out of FOMO, where I'm so worried about missing out. I either hang on to a loss too long, or I get into a trade for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to think that, you know, now that I'm older and wiser and I've been through many, many cycles, I'm more conscious of that, but no one's perfect, right? So I still, sometimes I still catch myself with that and I'm quicker to pull the ripcord on something if I think that I've got into it for the wrong reason, namely FOMO. Yeah, absolutely. And with an infinite number of media sources sort of re-emphasizing similar points, that's that's only going to increase. And we've certainly seen a lot of that in yeah. the last few years. Uh, completely agree. Okay, well, question two. Um, we, we like to get an idea of where uh, guests are going to to read financial or investment content. So is there specific economic or investment publishers you read regularly? Well, I consume a huge amount of financial media, you know, just from just standard news sources. Fintwit is, is a big one. I listen to a ton of podcasts, but then I also, one thing that I'm a little bit frustrated at is like lately, there's been so much sort of topical news flow that I haven't been able to read as many books. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, usually my goal for a year is to read at least like 30 to 40 books and this year and maybe add around like 20. So I'm like, my consumption of short form content is way up this year compared to my long form content. And I, and I need to balance that out a little bit. It's a little bit of a struggle this year because there's just so much <laughs> so much you know current event type yeah. stuff well i think that long form short form imbalance is probably indicative of the way markets have been uh for, for the last sort of year or so yeah but the long form stuff especially as it pertains to financial history i think is really really important to to read because you know history doesn't repeat itself but it does rhyme quite often and so so yeah i'm, I'm a prolific reader i also think that you have to I tweeted this out the other day. I said that, you know, when I when I used to hire for my team, I didn't just look for people with like analytical left brain skills. Mm-hmm. I wanted people with with right brain skills too. So I think it's very important to read material from other disciplines and other mental models. So, mm-hmm. you know, every once in a while I'll go on a deep tangent 
I'm a very curious person. Mm. So, you know, I think like one year I read three books on like, you know, cephalopod intelligence. <laughs> wow. One year I, you know, did a big deep dive on like, you know, quantum mechanics and stuff like that. So I, I go off on these tangents, but to me, it's, it's never wasted because it helps you build mental models from completely different disciplines that help you think out of the box. Yeah, completely agree. Um, but you're, you're way up on me if you've already read 20 books this year. Okay, third question. What is the most memorable moment from your career to date? You know, is there one particular moment or highlight that stands out to you when you think back? Memorable moment? Wow. Maybe let's, let's narrow that a little bit. Um, memorable moment, you mean from like a, from a lesson learned standpoint or? Typically it does seem to, yeah, I mean, to be fair, usually it does tend to be that a particular kind of market or market event that a lot of the time went the wrong way and they learned a particular lesson from that. That does come up a lot. Um, But, you know, pretty open to anything. um, But that, that does tend to be the way it comes from. Yeah. Okay. So I think, I think I have a good answer to this, you know, so poker players are, are very good. If you, if you've read uh, any Duke's Mm -hmm. book, thinking in bets she makes a very important distinction between separating the decision from Mm -hmm. the result right and so usually people will will say you know there's a there's a standard refrain that people like to use better lucky than Mm -hmm. smart Mm -hmm. right so like you know people obviously are uh happy to blunder into a profitable trade even if it wasn't necessarily for the original reason that they put Mm -hmm. on the trade and I would say, just from my own life experience in being in finance for so long, I would say that sometimes if you blunder into a wildly successful trade, but don't acknowledge the fact that you actually force gumped yourself mm-hmm. into it, mm-hmm. okay, that lesson, you might learn a very bad lesson from it and wind up paying multiples of your lucky mm-hmm. gains. Mm-hmm. I would say that's one of the most important lessons that I've yeah. learned is that, you know, you have to, you have to separate the decision from the result, even when it means that you lucked out and you, you made money, but for the wrong mm-hmm. reason, and you have to be very careful, be very careful and, and acknowledge the fact that, okay, well, maybe in this case you got, you made the money, but you made it for the wrong mm-hmm. reason and don't extrapolate, you know, from that especially coming off of the era and how that's relevant in today's mm-hmm. world is that we're coming off the era of four decades of essentially liquid endless liquidity yeah. lottery yeah. right and i would say that many many asset classes have confused a bull market with investment genius mm-hmm. right and that bull market being primarily fueled by you know the lack of structural inflation allowing the fed to paper over every financial crisis there is. And so I, I really think that, you know, as a nice bookend to this interview is that I, I think the biggest worry that I have is just recency bias and being able to zoom out and not to, not to necessarily assume that, uh, you know, lucky gains were the result of investment genius. Yeah, yeah. no, I completely agree. And I think that's going to resonate with a few listeners as well, for sure. Um, no, I think that is the perfect bookend and the perfect place to, to end. Um, that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on Opto Sessions, Michael. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. 
Opto updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.